The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. All right, Luke chapter 6. We, um, we continue where we began last week, beginning in verse 36 and reading down through verse 42. This is Jesus speaking in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says these words. He says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, these are, these are hard words. We've been looking at them now uh, for a couple of weeks. And uh, we understand, Lord, that these things are easy to read, fairly simple to understand, but quite difficult to put into practice. In fact, impossible apart from the redeeming work of Christ and from the power of the Holy Spirit alive and well in us. So we pray this morning, Lord, as we continue to, to, to sort of put flesh on the, on the bones here of what it means to be merciful, what it looks like to be merciful like you're merciful. Lord, help us to see our own selves very clearly. Help us not to run and hide. Help us not to try to evade your word. But help us to find ourselves in submission to it. That we might be forgiven of our sin and that we might be made merciful like you're merciful. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We began last week looking at this, that this section of Luke's gospel in chapter 6, and I've entitled this two-part message, What Mercy Looks Like, because the, the first verse that we read there, in verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful, I believe is sort of the, the hinge verse in this section, and that's the, the, the thing that, that Luke that Jesus, via Luke here, is driving at, that we're to be people who are, are merciful. Because our God is merciful, his people are to reflect that mercy in their own lives, in the way that they navigate with one another, in the way that they navigate with the world around them. We're to be merciful people. God is a merciful God. He identifies himself that way, as we saw last week. In fact, it is the primary way, or we could just say the first way that he identifies himself when given the option of how to identify himself. He shows himself to be merciful and gracious. And therefore, I think... It is incumbent upon his people to live our lives in the same way as a reflection of that kind of mercy. We're to be merciful people. And because we know that that's a sort of a vague term, merciful, what does that mean? What does that look like? We've been trying to sort of use the rest of the text here that Jesus gives us sort of to to put flesh on the bones, to sort of put in very practical terms what does mercy look like when it's 
practically being played out in our lives. What does mercy look like? And we began that journey last week, and we'll sort of jump back in where we picked off, or we'll pick up where we left off last week. But before we do that, I want to just make a couple of comments about um, uh, beginning in verse, uh, say, 39 and 40. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on them. I want to mention them just so you don't think I've ignored them or I'm somehow blind to see, not see them. Uh, these two verses where, where Jesus talks about uh, can a blind man lead a blind man? Uh, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple's not above his teacher. Everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's somewhat mysterious as to why Luke has included these words of Jesus right in the middle of this text that deals with mercy and that deals with judgment and that deals with uh, judgmentalism and forgiveness and giving because it seems a bit unrelated. And Luke doesn't make it very clear in the text why. It doesn't seem to connect with anything just before or anything after. So I'm just going to mention it to you that commentators are all over the board on where those two verses fit and what the significance of them is in the context here. That You can look, look at this up and research it yourself. The thing that makes most sense to me is that in the audience, one of the, the crowds that Jesus has been dealing with all along have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, who are sort of poster children of the opposite of mercy. They have been merciless on their people, and they continued to be merciless. They were judgmental to the max. They were the opposite of all of these values that are a part of the kingdom of God. And so I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding his crowd sort of, really there's two points. I think he's sort of, it's sort of a shot across the bow, if you will, to those hypocrites hypocritical, that's the word I'm going for, hypocritical religious leaders that are likely in the crowd, but it's also a warning to the others who are there to be very, very careful who you follow. Be very, very careful who you put yourself under as a learner and, and who you submit to as a teacher because two things are going to become the reality. If you submit yourself to leaders who are fools, who, are, who think they know the truth but are in fact blind, they will lead you nowhere other than to a ditch. That's where you'll end up. And he uses a funny illustration, can a blind man lead a blind man? I mean, that's kind of funny, right? If a blind person trying to lead a blind person, and you're watching this going, this is a train wreck, it's going to turn out nowhere good. They're going to end up in a ditch, and that's where it always goes. And such is the case when we submit ourselves to leaders who are blind, who don't understand the truth, who have embraced lies. They will lead you to a ditch. It'll be destructive in your life. And then the second piece is this. It's another warning. Whoever you submit yourself to as a leader, as a teacher in your life, is inevitably going to have an effect on you. They're going to rub off on you. Whoever you submit yourself to is going to end up, what they teach and what they believe is going to end up being reflected in your life. That's what he's talking about there in that second piece. You know, when you, 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 disciples not above his teacher, everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. So you're going to be turned out to be like the people that you study under. And he's warning the people, if you study under these, these fools who are blind, you're going to end up blind fools just like them. And so those are warnings to us as a, as a reminder who, who we submit ourselves to. Make sure that they're not blind and make sure they're not fools because the reality is they'll have an effect on your life. All right, we'll come back to that theme later on in Luke's gospel, but I just wanted to mention it because it really doesn't seem to go with the flow. I think that's what makes the most sense to me. But here we're looking at what mercy looks like. And we saw really the the first piece of this last week. Mercy looks like not being judgmental. Mercy looks like not being judgmental. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. So one of the first ways that that we, we display mercy, that mercy becomes a practical play out in our life, is when we choose not to be judgmental, critical, fault finding people in other people's lives. And again, because judgmental is a sort of a a phrase that can sort of twist and turn a lot of different ways, we saw it last week to sort of define out what is is the difference between 
practical wisdom and discernment that we are called to in Scripture with one another and the sinful sort of judgmentalism that Jesus is condemning here that is antithetical to mercy. And sort of we, we put some, some bullet points to that last week. And I'll just put them up there in case you weren't with us last week to know these things. But we, we, our, our judging is, our judgmentalism, our judging is not godly discernment. It's in fact sinful judgmentalism when we don't have all the information when we judge people without all the information, when we're quick to judge and we don't have the full facts and we don't have the whole story and we make snap judgments about people and we don't wait long enough where we're largely wrong and it's sinful when we don't wait to get the whole story before making an assessment. We found out also that our judging is, is sinful when we assume the worst rather than the best about people. When we evaluate something that's going on in someone's life and instead of assuming the best, instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, we, we assume the worst and we condemn them for the worst but that may in fact not be true. It's a sinful form of judgmentalism. It's also sinful, we saw last week, when we judge based on our opinions rather than clear truth. We have the responsibility to, be, to exercise wisdom and discernment, but that is a reflection of biblical truth, clear biblical truth applied to life. When we begin to judge people, not based solely on that, but based on our opinions and our own thoughts and our own ideas, we've, we've moved into the, the category of sinful judgmentalism that, that Christ condemns here. Now, we, don't, we don't judge people on our opinions or our thoughts or our own feelings. We judge them based on clear biblical truth. That's our only fair assessment sort of tool, if you will. So we also are, are sinful in our judgment. We're also judgmental in a sinful way when we start judging people's motives, when we go beyond just what they're saying and what they're doing and sort of just the facts, ma'am, when we move beyond that and we begin to assess what's going on in the heart because as human beings, we never know what's really going on in somebody's heart. We don't have access to the heart. Only God has access to the heart. And in the end, God is always going to judge the motives of the heart. At the end, in the judgment, he brings all things to bear. He'll, he'll expose the motives of our heart. But we have no way to do that with one another. So when we begin to judge motives, when we begin to assume why somebody's done what they've done, then we've, we've crossed a line. And then finally last week we saw that when we withhold forgiveness, that our judgment is sinful. When we refuse to forgive somebody. We'll talk more about that really this morning. But there's one more piece to this that I want to add that we didn't talk about last week. Our, our judging is sinful. It's sinful judgmentalism also when we don't address our own sin first. And he comes back to that in, verse, in verses 41 and 42. And he uses an, an absolutely hilarious illustration if you read it and try to envision it in your mind. When he says this, why do, you, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye or your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Have you ever wondered if Jesus has a sense of humor? Uh, you, you can't read this without coming to the conclusion he must have had a sense of humor. Because what he says is really, or the picture he paints is really uh, a hilarious picture. It's an illustration that's comical and it's ludicrous, in fact. Um, and it's, it's a perfect illustration for what he's, what he's going at here. And it really is, is, is ludicrous and it's comical. And it exposes really the abject foolishness that marks so much of our judgmentalism. But the picture he paints is two people, right? Engaging one another. One person engaging another person. And he is, he is coming at the other person, trying to pick a speck out of the other person's eye. All the while, he's got a, a log, our English translation says, hanging out of his own eye. These, these terms in the Greek, the, the word speck here, it's not a tiny piece of dust. It's really like a, a small twig or a, a splinter. It's something that's noticeable and clearly ought not to be there. But the word log is, when you hear the word English, you hear 
in translated English, log. The word is really a word that refers to like the main pillar in a building. It's like a massive, huge piece of wood that would hold up a building. And so the picture is of a guy trying to pull a, a splinter out of somebody else's eye while he's got like the main beam of the house hanging out of his eye socket. That's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, what a ludicrous picture that is. Can you imagine him trying to get near him? Come here, come here. I need to get close to you. I get this thing out of your eye while the other guy's just ducking and dodging the whole time. This log swinging out of his face. It's hilarious. It's ludicrous. Who would do that? But it's what we do all the time. Philip Ryken talks about the guy with the log, and he says this, the man's problem is not that the person cannot see at all, but that he cannot see as well as he thinks he can. He thinks he can see so clearly that he can pick a speck out of someone's eye, yet somehow manages to overlook the big piece of wood sticking out of his own eye socket. It's a picture of a person who has a, really an incredible lack of self-awareness. It's really astounding the level of self-awareness that's pictured in this man. And the level of prideful arrogance is also quite amazing, right? The, the, the prideful arrogance that would seek to pull something out of someone else's eye while at the same time completely lacking in any self-awareness awareness that a log is swinging out of his own face. How ridiculous. How incredibly foolish this must have been. This picture but it's indicative of how incredibly foolish most of our judgmentalism actually is. There's a word for this, and Jesus uses it here. The word is hypocrite or hypocrisy. It's the picture of somebody who's judging and criticizing and exposing someone else while harboring some sort of egregious sin in their own lives. It's Mr. Law Guy here is the problem. And we've all been Mr. Law Guy at some point, haven't we? There are three big problems with Mr. Law Guy. Three big problems. Number one is a problem of perspective, right? He's lost all sense of perspective. He's blind to what's obvious to everybody else. He can't see the log that's in his own eye, but he is obsessed with the speck that's in his neighbor's eye. His sense of perspective is all out of whack. And it's so common for us to be blind to our own sin, but to think we see very clearly the sin of somebody else. It's very easy for us to lose that perspective. And to begin to think that we can identify and diagnose and judge the sin in somebody else's life while being absolutely blind to what's going on inside of our own hearts. This man thinks he's doing God's work. He thinks he's doing God's work in coming alongside this person and pointing out the speck. The truth is, his focus and his perspective is completely off the chain, out of whack. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and begin to gossip about somebody else? Have you ever had somebody come up to you and begin to gossip about somebody else? You can nod like this, and I know you're awake. Yes? Have you ever had somebody come up to you and gossip about somebody else, particularly about somebody else's sin, maybe pointing out some attitudinal issue or some minor infraction that this other person has committed, and they just want you to know, of course, so you can pray for them or something along those lines, very spiritual, when it's really, in fact, just rank gossip? Have you ever had that happen? The next time it happens, you just need to do this. While they're talking, just start doing this. Just make these jerky movements like that until they ask you, what are you doing? Finally, they will eventually. Then you simply say to them, I'm sorry, I can't hear what you're saying about Sue because I'm too busy dodging that log out of your own eye because you're talking about her while you're gossiping to me. That's a sense of perspective out of whack, isn't it? It's pointing out the speck in Sue while there's a log hanging out of you. 
That's the problem with Mr. Mr. Law Guy here. He's lost all sense of perspective. But that's not his only problem. He's lost all sense of priority. It's not just his perspective that's off, but it's his priorities that are a mess. He's convinced himself that it is absolutely more urgent to address the speck in his neighbor than it is to address the speck, or excuse me, the log in his own eye. His priorities are messed up. In his mind, the speck in the other person is far more urgent a problem, and it has to be addressed now. The log can wait. His priorities are all messed up. Here's a simple diagnostic to, to, to just think through on your own. Ask yourself the question, do I spend more time thinking about and talking about what's wrong with others than I do privately confessing my own sin? Think about that. Do I spend more time thinking about and talking about what's wrong with other people than I do privately confessing my own sin? If so then there's a good chance that you're reflecting in your own life, Mr. Law Guy here. Good sense that maybe your priorities are out of line. It's not just his perspective and his priorities that are a problem, but it's the proportion, obviously, right? That's the big thing. The proportion is a problem here. His sense of proportion is gone. Mr. Law Guy sees the other person's sin as worse than his own, when in fact, the log significantly outsizes the speck. He's pointing out a minor issue in somebody else. By the way, it's not that it's an illegitimate issue. It's not that it's not an issue that needs to be addressed. It's just that the problem is, proportionally, it doesn't compare to what's going on in his own life, in his own heart. We need to come to terms with a simple reality that, is, that we're all prone to, and that's this. We naturally minimize our own sin, and we magnify the sins of other people. Every one of us, naturally minimizes our own sin and we naturally magnify the sins of other people. It's what we do. It comes natural to us. When it comes to ourself, we, we are quick to minimize the scope and the effect of our own sin, right? And when it comes out like, uh, yeah, I know I get a little angry sometimes, right? No. You're seething with anger. I, I know I occasionally gossip, you know, sometimes I do that, I know. No. You run your mouth about people all the time. Well, you know, occasionally I might stretch the truth. No, you're a flat-out liar. That's what you do. Sometimes I struggle with pride. It's all minimizing. When in reality, these things are real issues to us. We love to make excuses. We blame shift. We give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves. I was tired. I was hangry. If she hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have. Those are the things we do all the time, right? We minimize our own sin. But listen, buddy, when it comes to somebody else, we become technical experts in a moment, right? Technical experts. We become very clear, ruthless sin inspectors in the lives of other people. Whereas we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, we often, quite often, assume the worst of other people. Give no benefit of the doubt. We magnify their sin and its effects while we minimize our sin and its effects. That's what Mr. Law Guy is doing right here, right? It's just a, a sense of proportion that is way out of whack. And oftentimes when you and I fall into this rut of, of sinful judgmentalism, it's exactly what we're doing. Our priorities, our perspective, and our sense of proportion have gone sideways. 
And our actions are as foolish as this man in this illustration. So Jesus gives a correction in verse 42. He says, here's what you do about this problem. You first take the log out of your own eye. And when, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the issue here is not that we never correct anybody or that we never address anybody else's sin. The issue is that before we do it, we take a long, hard look at ourselves. That we, that we look at ourselves first. We address our own sin first. Before we correct other people, we need to have a right balance of humility and conviction. We have a right balance of humility and conviction. That's what has to happen. We have to own our own sin first. We have to admit it. We have to own it. We have to confess it before the Lord, and we repent of it and turn from it. You see, when we do that, when we come before the Lord in confession and repentance and we, and we, we own up to our sin and we lay it at the feet of the Lord and we, we experience his forgiveness and we experience his mercy and we experience his grace in our own lives, it has a, a humbling effect on us. When we, when we own our sin and we receive God's for, forgiveness in our life, it humbles us and it brings to us a sense of humility. As recipients of God's mercy, we're humbled and we're gracious and we're more apt to be humble and gracious toward others at that point. Those of us who receive mercy are more apt to give mercy. When we confess our sin and repent, we, we're reminded of our abs, absolute daily need for grace. And when we're reminded of that, it humbles us and we're more apt to offer grace to other people. When we confess and repent of our sin, that does something else. It not only, humili- it not only humbles us, but it clarifies our vision of other people. When we get the log out of our own eye, we can see clearly the other person's sin, right? When we get the log out of our own eye, we can see the full picture a little better than we could when the log was in our eye. When, we, when we're humbled and we can see clearly, we don't blow things out of proportion. We see it in the proper context and we're able to address it Appropriately. Of course, the illustration, as I mentioned, is not meant to teach us we're not to ever address the speck in somebody else's life. We have to be willing to address one another. That's what the body of Christ is for. That's how we love and encourage one another toward Christ-likeness. The illustration isn't teaching us never to do that. The illustration is teaching us that we have to do it with clear eyes and a humble heart. That's the issue. Do I spend more time thinking about talking about other people's problems and sin than I do privately confessing my own? That's the diagnostic. Otherwise, we're Mr. Law Guy, and we're doing this sinful judgmentalism. That's a pretty robust list of, of things there for sinful judgmentalism. And I suspect as you evaluate your own life, Probably all of those things have touched your experience at some point. You can look at those things and nod your head just like I can and say, yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. Yep, I've been Mr. Law Guy before. And as we mentioned last week, sometimes we take it a step further and we condemn people. We don't just stop at judging them. We then render a verdict and utter a sentence that we think is fitting the crime. And that's called condemnation, condemning also mentioned here by Jesus. There's no better example of this in all of Scripture than the, than the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? Every kid's favorite story in Sunday school, right? Jonah and the whale. Who can forget that story? We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but I do want to call your attention to Jonah because I don't think there's a better example in all the Bible of sinful judgmentalism, the very thing that Christ is speaking to here than this, this Old Testament prophet, Jonah. 
quick summary of Jonah. God calls Jonah, the prophet, to go to Nineveh and deliver a message. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh and deliver the message, so he quickly disobeys God, and he goes the other way. God says, go right, go to Nineveh, deliver a message. Jonah goes left, goes the opposite direction, refuses to do so. Gets on a ship, heads across the sea. God hurls a storm, we're told, at him. Sends a great fish to pick him up out of the ocean, or excuse me, out of the sea after he's cast into it. Puts Jonah in an aquatic timeout for a little season there. Gives him a little time to, you just sit there and think about your behavior, son. You ever had, ever had someone tell you that, your parents? I want you to sit there and think about your behavior. Well, maybe I did that in the corner, but Jonah did it in a fish. And God commands, after a certain amount of time, the fish to spit Jonah out onto the land, and he spits him out. And Jonah is now finally willing to be obedient, and he's finally willing to go and preach to the Ninevites. So he goes to Nineveh, the city of people that he despises, that he hates, that he, um, that he is sinfully judged in every, every way possible, that he is condemned in his heart to destruction. And he delivers the most reluctant sermon that any preacher has probably ever preached. He goes to Nineveh and he reluctantly preaches the message that God's called him to preach. And in spite of a reluctant, half-hearted attempt at a message, something marvelous happens. The entire city repents. The entire city repents. Tens of thousands of people repent. Jonah 3, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, this is every preacher's dream. Like he preached a message, and the entire city came forward in the invitation, including the king. You would think that he would be ecstatic. You would think that he would be elated at the the fruit of his preaching, but not Jonah. He's not ecstatic. Not ecstatic at all. He's even less ecstatic about what God does next. Verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God had promised destruction, they repented, and he did not destroy them. In response to the Ninevites' repentance after Jonah's preaching, God chooses to exercise mercy. He chooses to be merciful because he's a God of mercy. He relents from his promised destruction. He chooses not to destroy them, but to hold back the hand of his wrath. And again, Jonah should be ecstatic. God has has now saved, literally rescued, an entire city of people from imminent, utter destruction to eternal hell. And his preaching was instrumental in that. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, get this, And he says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better to me to die than to live. What a hissy fit. What a hissy fit. It displeased Jonah, and he was angry. The word angry there, is, is, it's a word that, that it's, it's loaded. It, it carries the idea of hot. It, it, Jonah is not just ticked. He's boiling mad that God did not destroy these people. What in the world is wrong with this man? We ask. He should have been elated. 
He should have been on cloud nine. He should have been thrilled. He preaches a simple message. An entire city is saved from destruction, but he's furious. Instead, why is he furious? Because he has a heart problem. He resents God's mercy. He doesn't rejoice at the mercy of God. He resents the mercy of God, and he resents it being poured out on his enemies. In his mind, he had judged the Ninevites. They were evil, ruthless, rebellious, violent people who deserved immediate destruction. They did not deserve the mercy of God. In part, Jonah's right. The Ninevites were all those things. And he's right on count number two, that they did not deserve God's mercy. But what Jonah is completely blind to is that neither did he. Neither did he. You see, in his mind, destruction is what they deserved, but it wasn't what he deserved. And so he says, God, see, I told you this is going to happen. This is why I disobeyed. God, this is your fault. Listen, I know what you're like. This is why I didn't do what you told me from the beginning, because I knew if I did this, you would, you'd be merciful. And you wouldn't destroy these people. And the principle we see in Jonah is this. We often demand mercy for ourselves, but justice for others. That's what Jonah's doing. He sees destruction as justice for his enemies. But he believes he deserves mercy. And therefore, he has the right to judge these people the way he has. A lot of our sinful judgmentalism flows out of that same root. It flows out of that same root that it flows out of in Jonah. We believe that we deserve the mercy of God, but we decide that there are others that don't. People we don't like, people who aren't like us, people who sin in different ways than we sin, people who we deem unworthy. And we begin to demand justice and we judge. This is Jonah. Lord, I'm angry. It's not right of you to let people like that into your kingdom. It's okay to let people like me in, but not people like that. He resents God's mercy. Jonah is nothing like God here, is he? He's nothing like God. He's the opposite of God here. He knows what God's like, but instead of celebrating it, he resents it. He does not want God to be merciful and gracious to Nineveh. He wants wrath, and he wants judgment, and he wants justice based on his judgment. And all the while, the man is living in rank, open rebelliousness and disobedience against the Lord. He's Mr. Law Guy, prophet Law Guy, in living color. What's the alternative? How do we not end up like Jonah? Well, Jesus tells us, in the second piece of what mercy looks like, or the third, actually. He says, forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. What does mercy look like? It looks like not being judgmental. It looks like not rendering judgments and condemning people, because that's not our lane. Only God is the righteous judge. And it looks like forgiving. It looks like forgiving. It's hard to forget if you lived in Charleston back in 2015, what happened at Emmanuel AME Church in downtown. Most horrible things that I've ever become aware of, certainly in my city, 
but really anywhere. A young man filled with hatred and bigotry and racism and all sorts of other things walks into a, a church and sits through a Bible study and during the closing prayer pulls out a weapon and just starts shooting people who are gathered for Bible study, killing nine people in the midst of a church simply because they were black and he hated them simply because of the color of their skin. Unbelievable, unconscionable, horrific sort of an act. Hard to imagine that somebody could be filled with that kind of hatred and racism to do something so awful. What's even more incredible, at least to me, was what happened not too long after that, after this man was caught and brought before a judge and was standing at his trial and the, the relatives of those who had been killed were, were speaking. I'll never forget the, the one particular lady whose face I can see in my mind. Her name was Nadine Collier. Her mother, Ethel Lance, had been one of the ones who was killed, who stood at that particular hearing and looked at the face of that killer on a video screen and just uttered the words, I forgive you. I forgive you. In the middle of her grief and in the middle of her pain, in the middle of the devastation that had descended on their family because of this man, she said those words, I forgive you. And you listen to others who said similar things to that, to that young man. And I, I just, to be honest with you, I stood in awe. How does somebody do that? How does somebody that soon, even, are they able to stand before someone who has done something so horrendous that has brought such pain and say those words, I forgive you? Well, the answer is, they're Christians. They serve a God who forgives and who's merciful. And they were simply reflecting the reality of that, what's in their heart in a practical way in their life. That's the only way that those words come out of a mouth at that time. Forgiveness that is amazing. Broadcast for the whole world to see. Amazing, in fact. Remarkable. And Jesus here says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Forgiveness isn't easy. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. There are an awful lot of times when we're wounded and we're injured and we're hurt because of someone else's sin and we don't want to forgive them. But being merciful like God is merciful looks like forgiving. Ephesians 4.32, we're told, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, as in Christ God has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, Bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him. Forgiveness is a command of God. It is a reflection of his mercy. God is a God who forgives over and over and over again, who chooses forgiveness over wrath, who chooses forgiveness over resentment, who chooses forgiveness over bitterness and, and, and anger and grudges. He forgives over and over and over again. That's who he is. He's merciful in that way, and we're to be merciful that way. 
What does it mean to forgive? Well, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is a decision, a choice that we make in regards to somebody else's actions, regardless of how we feel in a particular moment. It's a decision we make. If forgiveness was only based on our feelings, we would hardly ever forgive anybody. Forgiveness is not a feeling. We don't wait until we feel a certain way to forgive somebody. We forgive, and when we forgive, it is an act. It is an intentional choice. It is a volitional decision that we make in regards to somebody else and the actions that they've taken against us. It's a choice. Forgiveness is not a feeling, and it's not just forgetting. Sometimes you hear people say, forgive and forget, and the idea is that forgiveness is some sort of a a slow, gradual process of forgetting, that that, that forgiveness is nothing more than just letting time go by and letting the events sort of move to the back of our memory till we're not really thinking about it all the time, and at which point then we've now forgiven. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't just waiting till we're not thinking about it all the time. Forgiveness is making a choice to act. God says in his word, he says, when he talks about forgiveness, he says, I'm the God who forgives you. I will remember your sins no more. What he's talking about there is not that he somehow comes up with sort of cosmic amnesia and and can't remember what we've done. What God is simply saying is, oh, I I remember very well what you've done. But what what I'm doing is making an intentional choice toward you to no longer hold you accountable for what you've done, for the penalty of what you've done. I forgive you. I haven't forgotten what you've done. I'm just not remembering it in the sense that I'm not bringing it up and throwing it in your face and holding you accountable for it again. We don't just passively forget about offenses and call that forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just forgetting, and it's not excusing. Forgiveness is not just sort of falsely pretending like nothing ever happened. It's not saying to someone who's wounded us and hurt us in in a particular way, hey, no, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. That's not forgiveness. When we say stuff like that, we, we, we give the indication that, that what was done wasn't really important, that it wasn't really sinful, that it, that it wasn't really wrong. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't saying, oh, it's no big deal, never mind, don't worry about it. No, forgiveness is coming into somebody's world and saying, you know, what you've done is wrong, and we both know it, but I've been forgiven so much by God, so I'm choosing to forgive you. a simple definition from Ken Sandy about forgiveness. It's to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. To release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. It's to say to somebody who has sinned against us, you know what? What you did was wrong. It was wrong and it was sinful and it hurt. It hurt. Maybe even it hurt badly but because Christ has forgiven me so much in my life, I'm choosing right now to release you from liability, to release you from accountability as far as I'm concerned. I forgive you. It's a costly activity. When we forgive somebody, it's a costly activity because we absorb the liability of their sin We take it on ourselves and we absorb it. We cancel their debt. If you think in terms of the fact, think in terms of an illustration, you you lend somebody, you know, a significant amount of money and they don't pay you back and you say, forgive your debt. The, The liability didn't go away, you just absorbed the liability. 
and made it your own and forgave them the responsibility of it. It was costly. Forgiveness is almost always costly. But we're told that the motive for it is this. We forgive because God has forgiven us. The motive for it is is not based on whether they deserve it or whether we think they deserve it. The, the, The motive for our forgiveness is God has forgiven me so much, how in the world could I not forgive you? My debt against God is this high. Your debt against me doesn't even compare. How could I withhold forgiveness from you when God has not withheld forgiveness from me? If God has chosen through the death of his son to to, to nail my sins to the cross and never bring them up and hold me accountable for them, but instead extend his mercy and grace to me, how can I still hold your sins accountable to you and not forgive? That's forgiveness. Forgiveness looks like making a choice. It looks like remembering that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Not because I deserved it, not because I had earned it, not because I had done anything to merit his forgiveness, but simply because he's merciful and he's gracious and he chose to love me in this way. When you and I withhold forgiveness from other people, it's largely because we've we've forgotten our debt against the Lord and the price that he paid to forgive us. If you're harboring unforgiveness against someone this morning, you need to look to the cross of Jesus. You need to see the bloodied body of your Savior. His blood poured out for your sin. A crown of thorns on his head. A nail-pierced wrist, feet, lashes from a brutal beating. Him absorbing the penalty of your sin and ask yourself the question how can I hold this grudge any longer how can I keep storing up his bitterness and refuse to forgive well what does it look like to forgive somebody practically Ken Sandy gives these four promises of forgiveness that I I think are rich rich promises how do I know when I've forgiven somebody I think this is a great diagnostic tool You know you've forgiven somebody when you can make these commitments and live them. The first one is this, I will not continue to think about this incident. I'll not continue to think about this. I won't continue to replay the tape in my head. I won't continue to to mull over this over and over and over again and relive the hurt and relive the wound over and over again. The second is I will not bring up this incident again and continue to use it against you. I won't bring up this incident again and use it against you. Thirdly, I will not continue to talk to others about this incident. I won't talk about it anymore. Nobody's going to hear about this again from me. And then finally, I won't allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I think that's a great diagnostic tool because it's easy to fool ourselves that we've forgiven people when we have not right? It's easy to say we've forgiven somebody, but we keep talking about the incident. It's easy to say we've forgiven somebody, and we keep playing the video over and over in our head, and mulling over it, reliving the wound. It's easy to say we've forgiven somebody, and then we continue to remind them what they did. It's not forgiveness, that's unforgiveness. 
It's easy to say we've forgiven somebody and yet leave the relationship broken and not reconciled. You know, the kind of forgiveness that says, I'll forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you again. That isn't forgiveness. Imagine if the Lord forgave us that way. Imagine if you came before the Lord with your sin and confessed it, and the Lord said to you, I'll forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's not forgiveness. That isn't godly. It's one of the ways that we fool ourselves into thinking that we've forgiven somebody when, in fact, we have not. Let me ask you this question this morning. This is hard. Forgiveness is hard because we feel the pain that comes from other people's sin so often, sometimes egregiously and sometimes very, very deeply. Let me ask you, what wounds are you still carrying? What offenses are you still holding against your spouse, your neighbor, that person you work with, your boss, your parents, your children, that person in your family, that friend that you were once close with that you're not anymore? Isn't it time to just lay that stuff down and forgive? Isn't it time to be merciful like your Heavenly Father has been merciful with you? Isn't it time to release somebody else from that liability and make those commitments? I suspect as we think about these things this morning, there there are names popping up in your head. There are faces in your consciousness that you're thinking of right now because the Spirit of God is bringing them to your mind. The question is, Will you obey? Will you indeed be merciful like your Father is merciful? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these words are hard, hard words. Oh, we like to be judgmental. We hear Mr. Law Guy so often. We know we deserve your mercy, but boy, do we like to withhold it from other people. We like to make forgiveness contingent upon somebody's merit whether we think they're truly sorry, whether we think they deserve it. When you've poured out your abundant forgiveness on us, when we neither were truly sorry nor deserved it, but simply because you're merciful. Lord, we want to be merciful like you're merciful, but it does not come natural to us. And Lord, someone this morning I know is, is just dealing with this unforgiveness issue in their life and it has been a, a poison that's been rotting at their soul for some time. And this morning they just need to, to let it go. They need to make that choice to forgive, to release that other person from liability, to release that other person from penalty and punishment, to leave it with you. I pray, Lord, that you would bring that to bear. I pray that this morning, throughout this room, unforgiveness would just be laid down. That husbands would be reconciled to their wives. Parents would be reconciled to their children. That friends would be reconciled to friends. And that your mercy would flow freely from our lives. Make us people who are quick to forgive. Remove from our hearts the rot of bitterness and resentment and anger and grudges and replace those things with a spirit and a heart of mercy so that when the world watches us, 
they watched that dear woman in the courtroom in 2015, what they would see is the mercy of God on display in us that you might be glorified in and through us. That's what we want. Make it so, Lord. We pray it in your holy name. Amen.